I'd like to open this edition of the Undercut podcast with an obituary. This week's edition of the podcast is dedicated to the life and times of car number 118 at last weekend's Nürburgring, 24 hours. A plucky Dacia Logan, or is it Dacia? I think it's Dacia. A plucky Dacia Logan went into battle against the best of them on the world's most demanding circuit, but sadly, this year proved a little too much. The number 54 Dynamic GT Porsche collided with the humble saloon at around the 18th hour of the race, forcing both to retire. Unfortunately, it looks like the Dacia is a little too far gone. Keep racing on around that track in the skies, little man. Does that mean he's not coming on then? It, it unfortunately does, yeah. Welcome to the Undercut Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Ellie Mae Taylor, and we're back to preview this weekend's Monaco Grand Prix. Joining me as ever are my two co-hosts, Jesse Billington and Timo Albers-Daly. How are you both? I'm not doing too bad. It's been another busy Monday. Um, Tire Shop managed to snap one of the wheel studs on the midget, which uh, can be another thing to fix right after fixing the rear wheel bearing. Um, but I've got fresh tyres on it. Um, I'll give them a shout out on here as well, actually, a surprise one. Vintage Tyres hooked me up with a fresh set of Dunlop SP Aqua Jets. I know we're getting into tyre talk later. Dunlop, who haven't had F1 tyres since the 60s, I don't think. But anyway, yeah, I've got new tyres on the midget, but one of them's slightly broken because the tyre shop over-tightened up. It's Monaco Race Week. It wouldn't be Monaco Race Week without someone suffering a wheel nut problem. Now, there's that, there's that for a link. Timo, you got there you in the end with the link anyway, and I was just thinking this could have made an interesting-ish YouTube series for you, but you're probably a bit too late in the game to start that now. Mm, yeah, well, I've started YouTubing with it, but I haven't actually had a chance to edit any of the YouTube videos. I've been so busy fixing all the things that there's not actually been a gap to At least you wouldn't run out of content because something breaks every five minutes. Yep, it's a British Leyland sports car built in the 70s. It's going to be going wrong. Timo, how are you? <laughs> I'm pretty good, thank you. I've had a nice Monday to myself, so busy, busy, but can't complain. How's it, mate? I'm good, thank you. I just watched an episode of The Car Years, which and I want your thoughts. They did, basically, it's Vicky Butler Henderson and Alex Riley pick a car from a year. This year was 1978. And then they go against against each other. Three people then judge it and one person wins. Vicky chose the Mazda RX-7. Alex chose the Porsche 928. Which one would you have gone for? Porsche. Yeah, I'm going to go Porsche on that one. As much as I love the rotary RX... Oh. It's a Porsche, though. No, actually, no, I'm swayed by I'm swayed by the spinning Dorito. I'm going to go for the rotary, the RX-7. It's got to be I, went, I went for the RX-7, but it lost... Much much like it loses its apex seals pretty much every 5,000 miles, that that makes about as much sense. But the 98 wasn't particularly reliable in its day either. I was was, going to say, I don't think the Porsche probably lasted too long. Either just lasted slightly longer, did it? Yeah, they both require a lot of fettling to keep running. Um, mm, That's an interesting cold open. I like the interesting open. I like that one. Anyway, um, we'll move on from... RX-7s versus 928. Who had which car? I'm going to assume Vicky had the Mazda. Yes. Yeah, that sounds like as, a as, as she said about 10 seconds ago that Vicky chose the Mazda, I would wager that Vicky had the Mazda. Did she say that? I did. I'm like 90% sure she did. <laughs> oh, short-term memory loss is kicking in again, boys. Anyway, we'll move on to what the hell has happened. And one thing that hasn't happened, more importantly, is the Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix, Grand Prix or Made in Italy, whatever it was. It, it, Imola. Imola didn't happen. Um, we saw some horrendous weather conditions leading up to the race weekend, which saw unprecedented levels of flooding, land slippage all around the surrounding landscape. I think we lost, several lives have been lost in the sort of tragic circumstances, as well as obviously countless amounts of property damage and just sort of loss of property as well, I suppose, with all the floods and river water coming through. So quite sad, but equally, I think it was right for F1 to not try and stage a race under those conditions and force people to come out and work. 
So it sort of made sense. Um, but obviously, it's left a few things up in the air. Crucially, Emola's contracts, obviously, they would have been contracted to host X amount of races, and they've now essentially missed one due to reasons beyond their own. So that's now been tacked onto the end of their um, schedule. I think they're now hosting one as late as 2026, I think is as far forward. So they just tacked a year on to the end yeah. of the contract, essentially. It's a fairly easy fix in that regard. But equally, we've seen F1 do something it, we, it always... It's always nice when F1 sort of shows its really nice side, which is both Formula it, 1 It can still do that. It like. can do every now and then. It just <laughs> gives you that little glimmer of hope that it's still a, a nice thing. Um, F1 and Ferrari both gave large sums of money to the rescue and recovery efforts put in place. While many of the drivers took part in a charity sim race to also bolster the fundraising efforts, I know Lando Norris had a sort of charity drive where for every person who donated, he had matched the donations or subscribed. He was basically pouring a huge amount of money into it that way as well which was really nice to see. And equally, we saw Yuki Tsunoda actually went a step further and spent some time working in the affected areas, helping with the cleanup and the sort of recovery programs, which given that he's sort of based at AlphaTauri, he lives out in Italy these days, he's not all that far from Imola. It's very much a home race for the team. So it's sort of his local community that's been impacted and he sort of knuckled down and got on with helping to put things back, which again, it's it's reassuring that the group of people we like to watch go around in circles on a Sunday afternoon are still at heart decent folk, which is it's nice. Um, but yes. equally, Imola was supposed to be hosting a new qualifying setup, which is something we mentioned in the preview podcast, which we never aired. Um, so we'll quickly recap it. And they were going to trial a new qualifying setup. Um, but this wasn't fully ratified before the weekend either. So there's no word on if it would have gone ahead. Nonetheless, the plans were that the teams will get a smaller allocation of tyres, 11 sets, as opposed to the usual 13. Q1 will be run on hards, Q2 on the medium compound, and then the Q3 shootout on the softs. If the session is wet, though ideally not as wet as we saw in Imola, um, you get a free choice of tyres. Three sets of hards, four sets of mediums, or four sets of softs will be supplied for the entire weekend, with teams expected to use six through qualifying qualifying and five through the race. Early analysis from engineers suggests that teams would likely use one set of soft tyres in FB2 and one in FB3, and this would guarantee two sets of softs for the Q3 appearances. Though if a team doesn't make it through to Q3, they then do have those two extra sets of softs unused for the race, which on certain circuits or under certain conditions could prove incredibly favourable. Imola was supposed to be the first of two sessions like this, though the time for the second hasn't been confirmed yet. We'll likely see when all of this gets shuffled to in due course. I wouldn't be surprised if we go for one of the very standard circuits that we're likely to visit later on this year. I wouldn't be surprised if Spain hosts it or somewhere like Zandvoort, Austria. Or possibly Austria or Monza, just to sort of their well-known circuits. We've got good tyre data from them. Monza could be quite fun, actually, to do it on. It would be quite an interesting one to do it at Monza as well, especially seeing the softs. Being the soft, yeah, or teams trying to get the most out of the hards going through those long turns, high speed corners would be very interesting. Um, and then the final note we've sort of got hanging over us a bit from Imola is um, it was said to be proving ground for a series of upgrades for many of the teams, Mercedes included, and whether the teams want to roll out those upgrades for Monaco is a big question. Mercedes have said that they will be apparently rolling out their upgrades for Monaco, so whether they can get the appropriate data or not heading towards Spain is a different matter but I assume you'll be able to get something so it at least puts you on the right foot going into Spain or literally a week later we'll have to wait and see you though because the time you can stuff... see how much of those upgrades as well are more into the race or qualifying as well because then Monaco if it is more qualifying specific upgrades that could be quite interesting as well for this weekend to maybe mix things up slightly mm, but equally if it's super quality focused that might be detrimental come racing in spain with oh, yeah, yeah. different loads going through the car so it's, it's interesting. an interesting shake-up it's going to have as it sort of pans out i'm in two minds as to whether they should bring any upgrades to monaco because is there any really any point and i think there's also it has the potential to be more risk than reward if the drivers crash the new the new upgrades and then it's probably wise to maybe save it for Spain, but then at the same time... Depends which drivers you have in the cars for the upgrades. Yeah, but then at the same time, the development for those teams are being then pushed back by two weeks if they save it for Spain. So it's kind of like, what do you do? Yeah, I think... I suppose it, with Monaco, you just assume that you qualify where you finish, or you finish where you qualify, rather. So... Yeah maybe there's not too much to lose out by doing that and waiting for Spain if you then implemented it there because you're more likely to see the benefits of it. But 
it then typically will somehow get a lot of overtaking in Monaco now. <laughs> he says, not believing himself. Yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting one going forwards. I think you'll get some data from Monaco, but I don't think it'll be anywhere near as much as teams would like or would have possibly seen from Imola. So it'll certainly be interesting to see potentially if there's a shake-up in the qualifying order, but that could be down to the nature of... Depends when the player crashes. As well. Really does, yeah. If he goes out in Q1, it won't really have too much of an impact. But if he's sort of late on in Q3, as per, as per usual, we could see some spicy things. Um, speaking of people constantly crashing, um, Timo, you've got, you've got an update. Well, I don't crash or even refer to the But more to the news story. Okay, just checking. You don't know these things. Marco, Helmut Marco, has given De Vries a warning to improve, which uh, that didn't take too long, did it? Lawson and Iwasa are his mink and just to replace him, and apparently he's kind of got two or three races, maybe four maximum, to kind of turn things around before they start looking at implementing those changes. Although I'd be kind of giving him until the summer break, surely, because at least half a season. Then we saw that with the last time there was kind of a big shake-up with Red Bull and the junior teams. So it seemed a little bit mean to do it even before the summer break. But hey, um, obviously four, we both... Four or, five races gets us, four or five races gets us pretty much to the summer break, though, doesn't it, really? Yeah, but it was all... It, four or five is like only a couple of sources have said that, and that's kind of more of a generous offering of it. It's more closer to two or three, <laughs> depending on who you who you ask. So, yeah. But, yeah. Um, I would say their best plan of action is because you don't know if you put someone new in the car that they're going to outperform what De Vries did. I mean, he's not really doing any big crashes. He's not costing the company lots of money. I think the best way to do it is you have to put a rookie or someone who isn't in, in F1 in a free practice session. So put Lawson or Owasa. Give them both an FP session. Yeah. Give them a free practice session. See if they do actually outperform De Vries or get near to his times and then think, okay, maybe we should. And theoretically, it'd be better to do that now or sooner rather than later because then you've got your two rookie FP1 sessions done early doors and you can focus on whichever driver you have in that second seat being in that team for the rest of the season and not having to compromise yourself later on that. So, because you saw everyone like do it in Texas just last year and get really close towards the end, kind of like leaving it. Whereas this way, if you're if everyone else is kind of trying things out, you've got a driver who's more experienced by that point, regardless of who's in the car, and can take the most advantage out of practice and potentially capitalise that over into the race. But um, anyway, we know about Iwasa and Lawson, but I'll run through them quickly for those who may not have been paying attention to our excellent feeder series podcast, although why they wouldn't listen to them, Jesse, I don't know. Um, Yuma West's story is fairly well known. As I've just said, he smashed French F4 in 2020, where the only notable names for that season are Isaac Hadjar and Rafael Villa Gomez, who are both in F3 these days. Hadjar, F2, F3, I can't remember. Uh, Hadjar's F2, is it? It's been such a long time since we've had any future series done. Villa Gomez is definitely F3, I'm fairly certain. Isaac yeah. Hadjar, I think, is F2, but there we go. Anyway, Iwasa then had a mixed 2021 doing Asian F3 and standard F3, but came out of nowhere, it seems to bag P5 in last year's F2, two feature race wins and a further four podiums. He's also scored a further two wins this year, and sits just seven points off the lead of the championship in third place. So it wouldn't be a massive surprise if he does take over that seat, because we kind of thought at the beginning of the season, if Yuki doesn't pull his socks up, then they'll just replace like for like, essentially. Um, but it's funny how that could be two Japanese drivers, and I, I'm so close to having my my Japanese F1 team, but not with Honda in charge of it. So I need Honda to now buy off a Tauri for like half a season if this happens, and then just, but we'll make that happen later. Lawson, however, is a different one because he's been around for a bit of a while, but that's not a bad thing. He's currently racing in Japan in the Super Formula, where he's one of just four non-Japanese drivers alongside Giuliano Lacey, yes, the son of Jean, uh, Raul Hyman, and Ken Bolabassi from F2 and various gaming games that racy racy stuff I don't we didn't rate him too much in F2 and F, F did we Jesse um, he races with Red Bull Sport in the Mugen team and leads the championship by four points over second place Rutomo Mitaya which I've already butchered his name so I apologise R- to you for that Rutomo Miatia I think it is <laughs> or Miata you should have just got just when you edit that just go with the first one you sound a lot more confident to yourself 
Um, anyway, he's got two wins, two under his belt, including one on debut in the Formula, something he's done six times now in New Zealand Formula F1600, F3 Asia, Europe Formula Open, Toyota Racing Series, F2 and DTM. His 2021 DTM is one that particularly impressed as a rookie, as he was just three points shy of taking the title and a driver from with 16 years, I'm oh, sorry, from a driver 16 years his senior with a whole lot more racing experience and two years in the series already. So he shouldn't be overlooked, really, and nor is Japanese Super Formula, but it kind of does get that a bit, which isn't too fair, because it's kind of this weird series where it's pretty good when you watch it, but it just... It's more than F1. No one seems to watch it. Yeah, no one seems to watch it. It's F1.5. It sort of sits better yeah. between F1 and F2 than anything well, else. Because you just think that because you go F3, F2, F1, and then you go, oh, you're over here. It's like Formula E. It's like, it's not bad. It's just, it doesn't get enough attention as it deserves. Mm. But I mean, that doesn't mean you can't then get into F1, yeah. as DeFries himself has proved. I mean, Super Formula, though, has had some big names come through. Obviously, we've got Junior Alessi at the moment, Giuliano running through it, but his father, Jean, did it. Uh, we've got um, Johnny Herbert did it. Hightower Frensen's running it. Um, Eddie Irvine, both Schumacher's running it for a period of time. Pedro de la Rosa, Andre Lotterer, Stoffel van Dorn, Pierre Gasly famously ran in it before eventually joining Alpha Tauri. Uh, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. There's obviously some notes to be taken there. Felix Rosenquist, Alex Pillow, and Pato Award have all run it at some point. And there is a lot of fantastic driving talent there, both in single seaters, GT, and endurance that have gone on to do incredible things, really. And so it's it's not to be overlooked. It's a great finishing school for single seater races and is ideally suited to bridging this gap to F1. The speeds and the intensity of the racing is a lot higher than in many other series. And it really helps drivers get a closer feel for F1 before making that ultimate final step. Putting Lawson into it was a genuine big brain move from Red Bull and one that could pay dividends if De Vries continues to fail to meet the mark. I think the closest thing they've got to work against is going to be Gasly. And Gasly has come on to be a very good racing driver, but it took a team to sort of pick him up and actually look after him and mentor him to be better. Ideally, Red Bull would have figured that out and gone, okay, we give Lawson the super formula drive and then we take care of him afterwards Maybe, just maybe, we won't have the sort of Gasly Albon Perez situation. With that in mind, considering that this Alpha Tauri is not the best car in the world, if we think forward a little bit, especially with the Red Bull situation, we don't know what that team's going to look like next year because Marco's been saying he will look at Yuki if he continues to do what he's doing in the Alpha Tauri, which is kind of getting the maximum out of it at the moment. Do you then? Keep to freeze until the summer break, but put in these two in an FP1 session as per Eddie May's suggestion, just to see what that would be like. And then after the summer break, if DeFreeze hasn't improved sufficiently enough, for half of the races afterwards, you stick in Lawson, and for the other half, you stick in Iwasa. And then for 2024, you have three drivers, two seats, and essentially a third of the season each to decide what for them to prove themselves essentially. That way, if Yuki gets promoted, you can have the two of them in the top two. And if Yuki's still there, you've got the top driver from there and you can measure that pretty logically. I mean, it's not a bad And then have one of them as a reserve. Because what you could do is you could run Lawson for all the race weekends where Iwas is going to be in his F2 car, which is okay. obviously your... Uh, well, Spa's before the summer break now, so you've got... Uh, Zolder, Monza, and yeah. then... And Big Dabby. So you've obviously got three there, which are easy enough to fit Lawson into, and then just balance out the rest of them between the mm. two drivers. You've got a really good chance of sort of pitting the two against... I've had a mix of tracks that they've both been to in F2 before, and then sort of tracks that they haven't been to at all to make it kind of as fair as possible. Mm. So you've got these sort of fantastic option where you're Red Bull, you've got a driver that's doing very well in F2, a driver that's proving his might in a tricky series in a competitive field, and you're sort of spoiled for choice. And hopefully, just hopefully, the Red Bull Driver Academy will finally learn to look after the talent that it spends so much time Jesse, through why? the Why? Why would you go and say this out loud? You're just meant to think that. You're not meant to say it out loud. Someone's got to say it because Red Bull need to when learn to do you? it. Why are, you, why are you making this podcast responsible for it never working now? Because they, one day they will figure it out, but not every wonderkind is going to come through their system or not every driver that comes through is going to be the wunderkind that Max Verstappen is or Sebastian Vettel is. They come along sort of once in a generation. And I 
just think they need to spend a bit more time sort of looking after their guys, maybe just a little bit. So we look at what's happened to their last two drivers that came through their school, Pierre Gasly and Alex Albon. Neither of them actually race for Red Bull these days. Albon still has a Red Bull on his helmet, but is sort of quite nicely embedded in Williams and rather happy there. And Gasly is frankly happy to be rid of Red Bull and Alpine, even if it's not going brilliantly. So you surely at Red Bull, someone's gone. Maybe it's us. Maybe we're the red flag. And then they got fired immediately. Yeah, they got fired. Yeah, that's the problem. Red. Yeah. Anyway. But then, couldn't you say the same thing about looking after DeFries and giving him a season? I think he's... I mean, that's what I want, because I still think he deserves at least a season, because I disagreed with all the stuff they did with Albon and Gasling Fiat back in whichever year that was, because that seemed a little harsh, even for them. Well, with but at the same time, if they are going to be... Red Bull about it, then this seems the least worst option because then at least all the three drivers have a chance and they can't say that they weren't given an opportunity. And also, if there's any other seats opening up on other parts of the grid, you never know, maybe Red Bull loans them up to Haas or Alpha or wherever. Because yes, they have their own drivers, but maybe they want to go a different route. Who knows? But I would still like to freeze there for a whole season just because I think he. It's it's tricky because obviously he's very good as a driver in other categories, as we've seen, and Yuki does have two years advantage over him. So it's not surprising that he's doing better in some respects, but at the same time, how long do you give the driver to get to speed with it? But at the same time, you look at Mick Schumacher and Hertz, and they gave him two seasons, even with one of the, okay, essentially one season because the 2020 car or 2021 car, sorry, was an absolute shit. Um, so at least Haas gave him a full season and he smashed the car up a lot more already by this point, especially at Monaco, than De Vries has done. And I probably shouldn't have said that because Q De Vries doing a massive crash now in Monaco, probably right in front of the tunnel. But um yeah. I read somewhere that albeit it's not as expensive, but Leclerc has crashed more in a season than Mick Schumacher has. Uh yeah, I, I believe that to be fair. They had more accidents. The fact was that when Schumacher had an accident, it was a proper write-off accident. He Leclerc, did it properly. Leclerc just noses it into the barrier every now and then, whereas Schumacher goes end over end, turning his pass into confetti. Nick does more physical damage. Leclerc does more emotional damage. Yeah. But then what's the difference? They're both trying to push the limits of their car. Leclerc gets praised for it. Schumacher gets... I don't think he gets praised for crashing. Not praised for crashing, but he gets praised for sort of pushing the limits of that car and trying hard. And Mick, you could argue Mick Schumacher did the same. And got I suppose it's because point. it's he impressed Eddie Dawson, he's far as golden child, whereas Mick never really had the chance to properly establish himself in Formula One. Mm. It's very much down to, at that point, perception of the team. When it happens with Ferrari, it's because you expect the Ferrari to be up there. When it happens to the Haas, you go, well, that was a bit silly. The Haas is supposed to be 19th and 20th. What on earth are you doing trying to achieve something beyond that? It's that sort of don't have The Ferrari's 19th and 20th because of strategy, not because of the driver. Yeah. It's, it's very much based off of expectation and reality and where you assume certain drivers and certain teams are going to be. And I think that's an unfortunate thing to have thrust upon you as a rookie especially in sort of Mick Schumacher's case where you're coming into that with that great name weight behind you you've then got to deal with the fact that you're in the worst car and the moment you start overperforming it or trying to outperform it when it goes wrong it's immediately on you because everyone just assumes the Haas is going to finish somewhere in the bottom quarter but then when you've got it up into a higher position and it goes wrong that's then on you all of a sudden it's that sort of expectation or understanding of what the Haas is we're going to do and then if you do something that defies that it's on you it's like when the Ferrari's in sort of qualifies badly that's on the driver but when the Ferrari finishes badly in the race that's on the team it's it depends sort of essentially where society again to try and this is going to sound very sort of philosophical where society wants to lay the blame and goes from there insert clip of I think it's the Joker saying society um but yeah there are those 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 there's my theory Talk to us about tyres, anyway. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> uh, Pirelli is set to introduce a new specification of slick tyre. The new tyre spec will be tested during free practice one and two at Spain before being introduced, if all goes well, at Silverstone a month later. 
The new tyre spec is down to the fact that pre-season simulation data supplied by F1 teams to Pirelli, that's really hard to say when your teeth are being moved by an Invisalign, because there's a lot of S's, underestimated how fast this year's car will be and how much downforce they can induce, which is only going to get greater as the season goes on as the, as the teams develop their car. So to eliminate any potential problems down the line, under Article 10.8.3 of the Formula One technical regulations, Pirelli asked Formula One for their authorization to introduce this new tyre early on to combat safety and to hit performance targets specified by stakeholders. The new tyre will contain materials that had already been developed for 2024, which should make them more resistant without affecting their behaviour on track. I'd say it's a good thing. Pirelli see that the current tyres aren't going to be suitable down the line. They've made the proactive decision to change their tyre before they're almost forced to because something happens safety-wise, or the, re the cars start lacking in performance, but what do you guys think? It's a proactive step, and I'd like to see Pirelli actually trying to do something quite active in the sport. Previously, they've always been quite passive. Things go wrong, and Pirelli sort of throws their hands up in a very Italian way and goes, oh no, that's another great, and then everything goes to pop from there onwards. So it's it's interesting to see them taking this very sort of active, forward-thinking step. Um, I'd like to see them reintroduce silver, uh, super softs. That would be quite an interesting thing. If we're getting this slightly more rigid sidewall, just for qualifiers, just for sprint races, some sort of super soft would be quite interesting. Um, I'm only saying that one, so Ellie May can try and say super soft while she's struggling with her S's. And uh, two, while you're at it, could you try and say the name of uh, Pirelli's motorsport director? No. Damn. I wouldn't mind having super soft back in if it was only just for the sprint races because lordy lordy knows that we need something to make those interesting races if we're going to have to keep them around. And... I just want to see, if, if you're going to have a sprint race, treat it like a proper sprint race. You see F2 and F3, for example. Yeah, they just hammer and tongs, they go for it, and it's a lot of fun. And F1, it still doesn't seem to have translated that much. And I don't know what is lacking there, but maybe we throw some new tyres in there. Just try something, you know? I still think, I mean, this is an end of tyres, but you want to make sprint race more interesting. Do the reverse of the top 10 from qualifying, have a bit of fun there. And do that, and then chuck some some super softs in there, so you know they're only going to last pretty much as long, and make that kind of the only option tire-wise, unless there's like damp weather accordingly. But again, on this one, it's a weird thing because normally with all the changes F1 have been making lately, with various things, we're like, no, stop, why, stop messing. But it's like, actually, eh, I don't mind. Let's see. I'll, I'll reserve judgment. <laughs> Mm. quiet be optimistic and i won't say anything more because i don't trust that it actually will be good and i need to see it before i believe it mm. a sprint super soft would be a sort of very useful thing to try and spice up the sprint races now that it's very much its own thing it doesn't impact the gp as much Therefore, although at silverstone that is kind of tempting fate a little bit with the entire history we have yeah silverstone tires going pop mixed bags there but yeah it'd be it'd be interesting to see a sprint super soft tire and again a fun one to try and get ellie may to say but i think she's just going to turn that one down um instead we'll throw ellie may into her fun fact corner yes it will be the 80th time that formula one have raced at monaco making this his oak anniversary symbolizing strength and longevity which is rooted in long-lasting love What's its star sign? Pardon? What's its star sign? <laughs> Gemini, isn't it? It's usually in May, isn't it? So it's yeah. a Taurus or a Gemini, yeah. It's late in May, it's a Gemini. Oh. I have no idea what that means, but... Usually you're a fan of knowledge when it comes to the astrology stuff. Only when it comes to Leos, sadly. Yeah. Anyway... It also means it's the first of four tracks that have been on the Formula One calendar almost since its inception, and it became a permanent member in 1955. But we first came here in Monaco in 1950, where one Manuel Fangio took pole position, fastest lap, and his first ever Formula One win in an Alfa Romeo. In fact, apart from the Indy 500, which used to be part of Formula One, Alfa Romeo won every F1 race that year with either Fangio or Giuseppe Farina. Also taking a podium at Monaco in 1950 was Louis Chiron, who was the only Monogast to step up on the podium at his home race, taking third. No Monogast has won their home Grand Prix. That's going to change this year, isn't it, Charles Leclerc? Chiron is also the best 
the best, the oldest driver to take part in a Grand Prix when he entered the 1955 Monaco Grand Prix aged 55. This is the slowest track on calendar with the average speed being 150 kilometers an hour or 93 miles per hour. The circuit is pretty much stuck to its original layout, mainly because you can't really change a street circuit, but it's, its most notable modification is probably the construction of the tunnel in 1973. It is also the narrowest circuit, making it hard to overtake, overtake around, and in 2003 and, 20, and 2010, there were no overtakes. The most successful driver around Monaco and pipping both Graham Hill and Michael Schumacher's five victories around here is Ayrton Senna, winning six times. Five of those were done consecutively between 1989 and 1993. In terms of constructors, McLaren are the most successful with 15. And my last fun fact is kind of comes as a question. It's a fun question, then. Yeah. <laughs> Monaco is obviously part of the unofficial triple crown of motorsport, whereby drivers win the Monaco Grand Prix, Le Mans and Indy 500. Graham Hill is the only driver to have ever completed this. And in terms of recent drivers, Fernando Alonso is the closest with wins in Monaco and Le Mans, and Juan Pablo Montoya with wins in Indy and Monaco. As each racing series is now so different, they were kind of more similar back in the day. Do you think we'll ever see anyone win the Triple Crown again? Yes. Yeah. Who? It'll ask me when, or where, or how, or why. Will we see Fernando back in Indy? It won't be Fernando Alonso. It will be someone coming from IndyCar. It will be someone who makes the step from Indy to F1. Marcus Ericsson returns. Marcus Ericsson returns. I was thinking possibly more down the line of like yeah, Alex Pelot, Pato Award, possibly Pato Award. Um, Roman Grosjean returns. Now that I'm here for. I'm here for Roman Grosjean triple <laughs> crown supremacy. That would, it would be so uh, typical uh, of him, wouldn't it? I would love that. That would be the ultimate aspect of the Phoenix returns. Mercedes, give, Mercedes get their car back in order, finally give him that drive that they said they would give him. Do yeah. the Monaco Grand Prix because one of the drivers doesn't want to do it for whatever reason. They're like, wins that, does Indy the next weekend, goes off, does Le Mans, does it all in one year, job's done. Lewis does it Hamilton, like within a month of I, itself? Lewis Hamilton retires, Roman Grosjean steps up. <laughs> or, or, Latifi. hang on, no, no, no. Nico Hulkenberg has won Le Mans. <laughs> if Lewis Hamilton, no, no, if Lewis Hamilton hadn't have gone to Mercedes, Nico Hülkenberg was going to get that seat. So then give him that Mercedes seat. He can win Monaco, retire from F1, and go do Indy. It's plausible. I still think my money's on um, Pato Award. I reckon if anyone's going to do it in sort of the next generation or so it's going to be Pato because he's got a fairly decent chance of getting an Indy 500 win he's in Indy at the moment and he's doing damned well um, there's a strong chance that he'll eventually make the jump to racing for McLaren we're just relying on McLaren being decent enough to qualify on pole around Monaco and then all he's got to do after that is go win in Le Mans which I don't think is too far beyond his reach as a driver he's a talented enough driver and if he can get him with the right team world's his oyster well, we're making a bold prediction then to finish off this little segment. I'm going to go immediately left field, and I'm surprised it took me this long, even though I said Marcus Ericsson or Roman Grosjean. Let's have it as it, I'm just thinking like next generation or two, because obviously we need someone maybe younger to, to come in and do that, and maybe someone we don't know. But I will just leave it suitably open ended and say a woman. Yeah. It's not. Because wouldn't that be nice? Out. It's not out of the question. I mean, obviously, we've got things like Iron Dames outdoing endurance at the moment in GT. So then, I don't think it's going to be them. But... No, but there's yeah. a path being laid for it, obviously. Mm. We've got F1 Academy clocking away quite nicely in the sort of background and you've of got a European single-seaters. Going in IndyCar last year, the year before, and in Indian NXT with Jamie. So yeah. there's, there's, there's we've got big Catherine, room. what is it? Catherine Lake. Catherine Lake was in, the fastest female. Yeah. This yeah. weekend. she's into the the top 33 drivers this weekend mm -hmm. as well so she's made it into the race as well so she's not doing badly she also outperformed all her teammates as well didn't she yes she did yes. so she is not doing too badly so again there's these pathways being laid down it's not 
that far out of the realms of possibility that we'd see. The last thing I would say is it will be someone born in a year that will make the three of us feel insanely old. Don't. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's going to be someone who's possibly younger than Abby Pulling. I reckon that's the generation we've got to start looking at for uh, the next triple crown wearer to be a, a woman. And uh, again, it's not out of the realms of possibility. And I guess the saddest part is is that the hardest part is that they're going to probably struggle to get into Formula One. I reckon Le Mans and Indy are obviously plausible mm. to do. Mm. It's Formula One. Depends how successful F1 Academy can be in doing stuff and how soon that can implement it. In. Yeah, I think yeah. their best route would be to tackle Le Mans and Indy first and then obviously off the back of that, use that as some swing weight to try and get into Formula One. Like, you go, you're literally rocking up to an F1 team going, look, I'm a proven Indy. I want one race. I want one race. <laughs> I'm a proven Le Mans winner, winner. All I need is a decent car for one race weekend. That's all I'm asking for. Like, you could do it. Do what um, McLaren did with Fernando Alonso and Jensen Button. Jensen Exactly. Fernando went off to go race in Indy. So Jensen raced at Monaco and, and pissed took in his Fernando's seat. seat. Yeah, it's doable. That, that bit's not required. You don't have you to, don't do have to no, pee okay. in the seat. <laughs> but you should, because it's funny. Anyway, we'll move on to looking more accurately at this weekend's Monaco Grand Prix, and we'll take a look at the weather we can expect. And worryingly, the front that's been hanging over Italy is now moving westward and bringing changeable conditions to the south of France and the Principality. Thunderstorms are lingering over the area at the moment, and as we record this on a Monday evening, could be hanging around as late as Friday. Saturday and Sunday, however, are set to look a lot better by contrast, though, around 23 degrees Celsius and sunny with a very low risk of precipitation. What it will mean, though, is any rain that does fall will rinse the road surface and give us a very fresh track to race on. Uninterrupted running in the early FP sessions is going to be key to developing the track over the weekend. We do have F2 running and F3 in Porsche Super Cup. Got to get those Netflix noises so the track should rub it in well. And crucially, if it's going to be a wet Saturday, it could be down to an interesting qualifying. Both of you have points. Ellie May, you're first. Uh, just to say that Prelia are bringing the three softest compounds of tyres as well. Mm. Could be useful. Mm. Hopefully they brought wets and inters with them as well, because it might need them. Timo. I was only half copying a Lima because I just wanted to put my finger up as well, but also I'm now just thinking, expect delays all weekend because F3 is going to be goddamn carnage. Oh, there's going to be a lot of time spent sweeping up things from the circuit, which is going to be fun. I love the fact they also use, do they still use the wicker brooms around Monaco? I think they do. Probably. I like that. It's a nice touch because it means that you're not leaving plastic residue across the road surface. It keeps the grip levels up. It's clever thinking. They know what they're doing in the modern guests. Apart from when it comes to winning around the <laughs> from race direction. Yeah. Actually, no, they're not doing that this year. Well, they're not doing it this year. No, no, no Formula One's got the controls this year. Though Monaco is setting up its own national TV broadcasting service purely because they want something to give coverage to when they enter Eurovision in a few years' time. That's the reason I know that. But that means that eventually they might regain control of over the broadcasting of their own Grand Prix, which is interesting. No, no more you've been strolled. No more you've been strolled clips for this, this year. Is this the first or second year that we don't have free practice on a Thursday for F1? Well, at least the second year. I feel like we've had it for a while now. I think that happened last year. Yeah. Um, Which is sad. It's sad. Yeah. It's a change from... Just mainly because it was just novel in Monaco and just like, oh, you, you're just being different. But mostly because people wanted to drive around and equally it gave people a chance to sort of replenish shops and stuff in that in-between period and stock things up. It was kind of weird. Um, it was more to the fact that people like to party in Monaco. Yeah, give people... You, there's always like a fashion catwalk thing as well, isn't it? You always see the yeah. drivers in these absolutely f***ed outfits doing like catwalk shows and stuff beforehand, so I had to time in with that. Anyway, All I'll say to that is, where is Ricardo? <laughs> He's in Monaco, isn't he? He's he's lined up, ready for this one. He's just there for the vibes, man. There for the vibes and the good time. He's got a bottle of DR3 red wine open. He's having a and he's got yet another marina that he can push Yuki into. He yes, he'll be looking forward to that. Yuki is not getting on a boat near him, and he's certainly not <laughs> getting on a plane with the other Red Bull drivers either, because it never seems to end well for the poor little guy. Um, anyway, which on-track battles should we look out for? Um, any of them is car versus circuit. 
car versus circuit uh, maybe i don't know ferrari versus its own strategy i don't know it's unlikely we'll see much dicing on track with the overblown proportions of the latest crop of f1 cars this is a weekend that's driven by saturday here it's a question of who can turn out the best qualifying lap outright pace isn't the name of the game here so the field opens up a bit beyond the red bulls but don't count them out for certain aston martin have a car that should be able to compete here as do mercedes ferrari are also a strong shout but charles is up against his home curse around the streets Sainz has three poles to his name in his career, all at very traditional circuits, but that's not to rule him out of this street track. He's taken a podium here before. Uh, much further down the field, if a team can get a good qualifying run and plays it sensible with strategy, they'll be on for some decent points. All is very much to play for on a track that, while it doesn't offer much on a Sunday, can very much excite on a Saturday. Which leads us to the very fun section of predictions lack of fun in my pole position though i will say because it's just probably going to be max Verstappen. it's a safe bet it'll give you some points which is what's needed because we're both miles behind ellie may at this point oh, are we still going for points i'm I still going to ellie just one and we were just having a bit of fun at this point I, i've still got the it's like red bull with the championship we know they've probably got it so let's just have a bit of let's just stick around no, no, I've still got the points, the, the spreadsheet set oh, up. Oh, no, I'm sure, but I just don't think we're actually deliberately trying to get them. I, I am, because I'm <laughs> insanely competitive. So, uh, <laughs> Ellie May, who have you predicted for pole position? I've gone for Charles Leclerc. He's done it before. but He's done it before. He's done it twice. Yeah, but he never actually turned it into a podium, did he? I'd say trust Charles Leclerc to get pole at Monaco and yet be one of the very few drivers to not actually convert that pole. Yeah. I've gone for Fernando Alonso because if anyone's going to upset the apple cart this year with... A, with um, it's a good chance things. for him to win a race. Yeah, and equally, I think I've got to do it because for quite a while now, I've had him penciled in as my race winner here. So it made sense to put him on pole and then just have a really sensible Aston Martin strategy and he wins. So that leads in nicely into the podiums where I've gone for Alonso Sainz Russell. I'd be intrigued. I'd be kind of up for that race because it promises that at least there was interesting qualifying. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I would also take at that point because until they slim down those cars... Monaco is just going to be, like you say, very tricky to overtake. So you're going to have to rely on Bottas-style pit stops or lots of crashing for that for anything to be kind of going out of whack there. Yeah. That being said, I'm continuing with tradition of seeing what happens if I do this prediction and see if it comes true at any point, which I don't think it has yet, uh, which is kind of amusing. Um, maybe once at maximum, but I think I just managed to choose it where it's just awkward enough. So I go with the result from the last Grand Prix. So Verstappen P1, Perez P2, Alonso P3. Jesse's shaking his head to say that hasn't happened yet. You, you've just quite amusing considering the, the three drivers we get most often and they just keep swapping just enough. You've had Alonso pay off once, twice, three times, you yeah, know, three times podium. in a row. Yeah, but the whole podium has never paid off for you. So this, as a strategy, it's, it's quite not amusing act, considering <laughs> considering how dull we think the podiums have been. It's not actually paid off yet. Anyway, uh, I know I did say in a previous recording that I thought Alonso would win, but I I hope this doesn't come back to bite me. <laughs> but I've gone for a Leclerc win, Alonso the second, and Carlos Sainz in third. Everyone's <laughs> just looking at me in silence. That is worse than me saying that Red Bull is going to look after its junior drivers. Timo's nodding in agreement. That's how bad it is. He's not even got anything clever to say. He's just nodding in agreement with me for once. It's it's appalling, frankly. We should ask you to leave the podcast. Why would you do that? <laughs> Why would you even do that? Why not? He's going to be on pole, and then he's going to get ready. He's going to go three, two, one, and he's going to hit reverse. That's what's going to happen now. Engine's going to die. Someone's going to ramrod him into Sandoval. There's going to... No, no, no. Because for my fastest lap, I have also said Charles Leclerc. And whenever I have done this for Max Verstappen, the man has never let me down and has always got two out of three, at least. Key key difference there, Max Verstappen. Mm Hmm. Yes. And also two out of three still means that he'll get pole position fastest lap but won't be on the podium. (laughs) <laughs> maybe but usually it's the qualifying that gets me and this is Charles Leclerc in Monaco yes but it's going to be 
like Danny Rick Redemption. You know when Red Bull messed up and then the next year he won it? It's going to be that. How many years has Charles messed up in Monaco now, Jesse? Most of them. However, she does have a point when it comes to her pole position predictions where three out of five times she's been incorrect. So statistically... I think this is is a cat and a a buttered piece of toast situation where it's just going to create a vortex and she's not going to succeed in anything except chaos. She's either going to be correct with her pole position to sort of balance it on a three for three thing or it's going to follow the now growing pattern of she's incorrect with her pole position and thus the other two have to be correct by proxy. I've gone for Lewis Hamilton first as lap. Ellie May has obviously gone for Charles Leclerc given that's like the other sort of third of her weird trifecta of cursing the poor lad i've gone for fernando alonso because i don't know i reckon he's great at forming a train so obviously if everyone's stuck behind him they're not setting fastest laps he is so i don't know that's that seems to be my theory i kind of had the theory that charles Leclerc would be leading and to keep fernando alonso at bay you'd have to keep pushing and that's why he's got fastest lap so but the same school of thought that I've gone for with yeah. Fernando Alonso, but again, we're re- you're relying on Charles Leclerc not tapping the wall and screwing his gearbox up during Q3 and thus not being able to make the start of the race, thus yes. promoting Fernando Alonso to pole. But he, that was 2021. In 2022, he got there fine. I'm just looking at your world prediction, by the way, Eddie, mate, and I'm just thinking, if Charles Leclerc crashes significantly enough in quality, and it doesn't even have to be that big a crash, it just has to be significant enough, you are f***ed for the whole weekend. Yep. Chances are the rest of it will not happen. Yep. This is the chance for the two of us to catch up in the points as well, because this could really hamper her. I mean, she is on double your points and two-thirds further ahead than, than me, but yeah. You're all looking. Is, you're both looking at me like I have completely lost the plot. <laughs> yes, I will concede one thing there and say, but is this perhaps not the best time for me to predict a McLaren two three as a world prediction to counter my own podium prediction? It'd be good. Or I guarantee myself points. Or I kind of well, I don't guarantee it, but I. You're playing both sides of the table, which feels wrong. Yeah, yeah, but also it's McLaren, so I'm safe. Of not getting yeah. anything. Just you wait and it'll be um, Oscar Piastri P2, Lando Norris P3, and the crowd will go absolutely wild as a rookie stands P2 and Monaco. I don't know. It's, it's going to be mad. Um, I've gone for the wild prediction of Red Bull Suffer. They're nowhere in my fastest lap pole or podium predictions. I just reckon they're going to have a bit of a torrid weekend of it. I, I don't know. I'm just, I can see something going a bit wrong. Um, I'll just take it because it'll be interesting. Uh, I haven't put Red Bull in any of mine either, which I don't think I have ever done. You're very much ride or dying on a Monegasque here. I very much am. There's the title of the podcast, Jesse. <laughs> ride or die on the Monegasque. Ride and die on Charles Leclerc. <laughs> well. Ugh. Well. That's certainly a point to end on. Um, I haven't said my wild prediction. <laughs> no, we, we've already cut. Timo mentioned your wild prediction of Charles Leclerc doesn't crash in qualifying or the race. Yeah. Which we said that if that does happen, though, it scuppers all the rest of your predictions. But if it, if it does happen and he doesn't crash, yeah, you walk away with. Good chance you walk away with the normal amount of points you walk away with because you still do all right normally, anyway. Which is like an average of being normal (laughs) 0.652 points per race weekend at this point in time. How can that be 0.625 per race? We don't have more than six points a race. 0.625. You don't always score five, and you there's been weekends where you haven't scored points. And I've still got um Imola on that list, I need to take it out to (laughs) balance things out. my all my predictions come true though. Someone's got to believe it. Yeah. For a second, just you know. Yeah, we're not believe we'll believe that one when we see it. Hopefully, at about four o'clock on Sunday well, afternoon. I just have a nice picture in my head of just Jacob listening to this somewhere with a beer in hand, just listening to Ellie May's predictions. 
Well, there could be the potential that me and Jesse watch this race and qualifying together. So, yeah. when my predictions happen, <laughs> I can make sure you're a safe distance. I'll try and get like a live reaction of the two of us watching qualifying and that, then we'll see. Then we've got something for the review episode, certainly. Mm. It'll be one of us spit taking a drink and the other one laughing wholeheartedly. <laughs> or just general disappointment as Max Verstappen romps home to another pole position for an ultimately dull Monegasque Grand Prix. But that is all still to come. This has been our preview of the Monaco Grand Prix. And we, of course, have been the Unlockup podcast. Join us again when we'll be reviewing the Grand Prix from the Principality, as well as the feeder series action from across the weekend. So make sure you've liked, commented, subscribed, got notifications turned on, and all that malarkey so you don't miss a thing. Equally, while you're poking around our YouTube channel, be sure to give our interview with Abby Eaton a watch. It's finally up, out, and edited, um, and it's a fine little thing. It's rather interesting. Some interesting insights into who's the best driver out of the Grand Tour trio. Definitely worth a watch. In the meantime, though, Timo, where can the people find you? You can find me over on Is It Fast, On The Curbs, The Night Drive Podcast, Paddock Sorority, and, of course, the old Instagram. Excellent. Ellie May, where can the people find you? You can find me doing the graphics for our Instagram page and also the track guides. I don't actually promote them on here, which I should. If you want to know how to do a lap around whatever track we are at for the weekend, then go take a look. That um, was pretty good. Thank you. You sound surprised. Okay. I don't know why I'd be surprised. I usually proofread them. <laughs> exactly. Short term memory. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's firing up again, guys. <laughs> Quickly, before it gets any problems. Um, in the meantime, if you want more of me, you can find me actually mostly in the workshop at the moment, fixing the growing list of problems on my MG, which just seems to be constantly generating them. Um, beyond that, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter as at Jesse on Cars. And my writing can be found in Classic Car Weekly. I'm set to go Classic Rallying in a few weeks' time. I've got a Fiat 124 Spider convertible. We're going to have to open up, up for the that. podcast with another obituary, Ellie, mate hopefully not we'll wait and see possibly for the MG more than anything speaking of MG Timo I did it I told Jesse a fact about classic cars I can do it about F1 I told him a fact about classic cars that he did not know about albeit it was more like trivia than the car itself but I told him that you take the win where you take the win exactly Uh, I told him that Elvis Presley used to own an MGA. Yeah, I was genuinely surprised by that. That's a that's a fun fact there. Rounding out the show with a with a corner from Ellie May in her fun fact corner of Elvis Presley used to own MGA. What a fantastic podcast this is. We'll see you all after the Monaco Grand Prix.